Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the third series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore secularism, the common good, the trans debate, how to talk about God, what animals teach us about ourselves, how pandemics shape history, and the nature of reality itself. In spite of everything, we go on saying God. So begins Rowan Williams in an essay entitled Trinity and Revelation. It is, at first glance, a strange comment to come from a theologian and someone who would go on to be Archbishop of Canterbury. But it hints at two important things. Firstly, we do still keep talking about God, even in our peculiarly secular age. We may not go to church much these days, we may not even believe in God, but we don't seem to be able to let off talking about him, or her, or it. Second, there is a problem with this. Indeed, it's a problem that lies with the talk of anything divine or spiritual. We are, if you like, all too often trapped in an unenviable choice. If we take our religious language literally... We find ourselves believing all kinds of silliness, that God is a rock, but one with wings, for example. But if we say, oh, it's metaphorical, we're often heard to be saying, it's just metaphorical. In other words, we shouldn't take it too seriously because basically it's not really true. But what if that's a false choice? What if language wasn't simply a blunt choice between truthfully literal and illusorily metaphorical? And what if the challenges that we face when talking about God are the same ones we face when talking about nearly anything, certainly anything that is quintessentially human? Janet Soskis is Professor of Philosophical Theology at the University of Cambridge and Distinguished Research Professor of Catholic Theology at the Divinity School at Duke University. She has a particular interest and expertise in questions around religious language. From her classic book, Metaphor and Religious Language, to her forthcoming one on Naming God. Janet, welcome to Reading Our Times. Oh, thank you. I want to begin by tracing the history of the idea that language needs to be plain and simple and unambiguous if it's going to be true. Where does that idea come from? Well, I think as a philosophical point, it's a point from the 16th, 17th, 18th century. I think obviously everyone's wanted clear speech. The ancients were all trained in rhetoric. That's about clear speech. But this attack on figurative language was also, I think, an attack on rhetoric. Rhetoric was deemed by people like Hobbes and Locke to be obfuscating. And it was sort of felt that If you couldn't say something straightforwardly without metaphor, if it couldn't be decanted from metaphorical language, then it couldn't be load-bearing. It couldn't carry truths. This can never have been a very well-thought-through philosophical point because it would rule out so much. But it would surely rule out a lot of talk about God. Yes. 
I wonder how much of it can be traced back to the Reformation idea of sola scriptura, scripture alone, and indeed, ideally, the plain meaning of scripture. Do you think Protestantism lies at the heart of this attack on figurative language too? I don't think so, because all the great Protestants, magisterial Protestants, were highly aware of figurative language and happy with it. If you, every time that Christians praise Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, they realize he's not a young sheep. So I don't sense any of this in the Reformers. I think it may be more closely associated with deism as that grows up. The idea of wanting to get rid of any anthropomorphism in God and have just a God that was almost a mechanical first principle, uh, get rid of a personal God. I think that's probably more where it comes from insofar as it has a, an origin. Mm. You mentioned Locke and you quote him in his essay concerning human understanding at one point in the book from a chapter that's tellingly entitled Of the Abuse of Words. And it's a great quote, I want to read it. If we would speak of things as they are, we must allow that all the art of rhetoric, all the artificial and figurative application of words eloquence hath invented are for nothing else but to insinuate wrong ideas, move the passions, and thereby mislead the judgment. Ironically, it's a wonderfully rhetorical dismissal of rhetoric, isn't it? Absolutely, it's a classic thing to do. But a misreading, for his own purposes, of what rhetoric was doing. But very strange in the voice of Locke, who we now know is not really a deist, but is quite deeply committed to the Bible, but also had quite a fulsome description of God, he believed that you could simply by thinking about it, determine that there there was a higher being and this being had the qualities that we admire in a man only to a greater degree. So mm. we admire wise man, we admire an even wiser man. And so God is omniscient. And so his own use of language wouldn't bear up to the scrutiny that he seemed to apply to it. That anti-rhetorical and particularly anti-metaphorical, anti-figurative set of arguments reaches a kind of apex, doesn't it, in the early 20th century with logical positivists who argue that for statements to be meaningful at all, they have to be verifiable, they say, and then fortifiable. That's the high point of a movement that is determined to treat language as necessarily literal. Yes, as almost mathematical too. The logical positivists were coming out of that kind of a space that wanted to do almost the mathematical contours of human language. And this eliminated not just talk about God, but talk about emotions, talk about beauty, all sorts of things. Domains become meaningless under this kind of acid of criticism of the logical positivism. But it couldn't last for long because simply language doesn't work in that way. Certainly by the time you got to someone like Wittgenstein, he started in that mode, as you may know his first book, Tractatus Logicus Philosophicus was in that mode of trying to mathematize the way in which language worked. But he became very aware that language simply didn't work in that way. It seems to me that he became conscious of that when he was working in England and working in a second language. Their metaphors strike you. You don't realize they're metaphors or dead metaphors. I remember being quite struck when in Germany and when you spill the coffee in the bottom of your cup, it's called a foot bath. You know, I thought it's that, <laughs> that's nice. But all kinds of things like stem of a glass, we can find all kinds of dead metaphors everywhere. And of course, then he was writing in his transitional book, the blue and the brown books, what connects a deep thought and a deep well and a, a deep association and a deep blue color. How does natural language work? And famously, he was on the train with a Cambridge colleague who was Italian. 
and talking about his rather mathematical views of language. And, and the colleague just took, he was Italian, just took his hand, brushed it under his chin in a recognizable gesture of disdain and said, well, well, how does that work? And of course it doesn't because natural language is about communication between people and it's not functioning strictly on a mathematical basis. Locke's view is that metaphor is fundamentally ornamental, isn't it? And mm. I think you used the example saying, he is a fox as opposed to he is cunning. You're not saying anything different. You're just doing it with a bit of bit of elegance and a bit of eloquence. Now, that emphatically isn't true, is it? Why not? Why is metaphor more than simply ornament on language? Well, there are plenty of things that we say using metaphor that we don't have another way to express. And often these become dead metaphors. But this is where I found, when I was writing this book as a doctorate in Oxford, my ally was a philosopher of science. He was, despite the fact that Oxford was full of philosophers of language, the only one that thought metaphor wasn't um, beneath consideration was a philosopher of science. Scientific theory construction is, is filled with metaphor. The hydraulic model of electricity as having a current like water, like a stream, and flowing like a stream. Early theories of electricity, now outdated, were based on a hydraulic model. And the way they expressed that was through this metaphorical language was based on the hydraulic model. And that's often the way scientific language would advance, especially when you're thinking about things we don't fully understand or can't really understand. Mm. So although it's metaphorical to say there's a live electrical current running through this wire, but, you know, don't say, oh, that, well, that's a metaphor. I'm just going to stick that wire in my mouth. No, you don't do that. <laughs> because well, even if it's metaphorical, it doesn't derogate from the fact that it's it's literal in a way, yes. <laughs> I suppose yes. you could say. And this is still an opposition that comes up along as though literal me means true and metaphorical yes. somehow means untrue. But, yes. of course, metaphorical language can be expressing a literal truth. To what extent do you think that ultimately all language is metaphorical then? I ask that because, as you say, we use vast numbers of dead metaphors in our speech. Another one that occurred to me when you were talking there is cell. I think I'm right in saying when people first looked through microscopes and looked at what we now call cells, it occurred to them that it was a bit like a monastic cell with a kind of a nucleus sitting in the middle of a wall, and that's why they're called cells. Now, most people wouldn't be aware of that at all, but it's now settled in our language. It was originally metaphorical. Now we use cells in a, in a literal sense. Well, certainly a lot of etymologies take you back to some metaphorical link or certainly back to connections that aren't necessarily metaphorical, but figurative in some way. Like religion, I think, comes from religio, which means binding together, that mm. which binds together. And it's a very modern word, religion. But it doesn't help to say all language is metaphorical or even perhaps originally so, because language contains words like of and but and over there and in, involves instension. And language is, is more than just nouns or adverbs. So mm. I think that it's probably better to just realize the important place that figuration has in all our speech yep. and, and take it at that. Yeah. Just while we're on figurative language, is there a difference between metaphorical language and figurative language and analogous language, for example? Are they doing different things? It depends on the discussion. Sometimes the text says what it says by being figurative. One that actually Aquinas uses is God raised his mighty arm. Now, Aquinas believes this is literally true, but he realizes it's, in this case, a metaphor because God doesn't have physical arms. 
he wouldn't say that was an analogy get, to get to a number of your categories because for Aquinas, analogical terms are terms which are loose enough, you might say, to be applied to ourselves and to God. Cause would be a good one. So Christians believe God caused the world to come into being. But cause there can't be cause in quite the same sense as I caused my pencil to write these words on a piece of paper. Mm. Because Aquinas believed in most of classical theology that God was the creator of all that is, including space and time. So once you say, okay, God caused the world to come into being, except outside space and time, that's not a minor qualification, that's entirely yeah. major. What yeah. that shows is not that God couldn't cause the world to come into being, but the mm. cause here must have a different sense. We know from faith, from scripture, from our experience or whatever, that God is the source and cause of all that is. But this can't be cause in the same sense of a spatio-temporal cause, such as I've just said about mm. the pencil and the paper. Yeah. This is, of course, centrally significant when we're talking about God or when we're talking about the spiritual or the divine. But I think it's very important to emphasize that it isn't only when we're talking about the divine or the spiritual that it becomes an issue. I think there's a real error that we can fall into here in which we tend to believe, well, most of the things we talk about every day oh, yes, can be more or right. less literal. Mm, yeah. And then actually when we talk about spiritually kind of stuff, we have to be metaphorical. I was thinking just idly before we chatted about the different ways we talk about wine. And I came up with a list. You know, we talk about wines and they're crisp, dry, firm, flat, heavy, sharp, supple, tart and velvety. I mean, mm -hmm. just, just something mm -hmm. as mundane as wine mm -hmm. demands an extraordinarily rich mm -hmm. metaphorical vocabulary. And that's without even beginning to talk about our inner states mm -hmm. and, and how we feel. So I think it's really important to emphasise, isn't it? This isn't just a kind of a God issue when it comes no, to language. No, no, this is just being human, isn't mm -hmm, it? Mm -hmm. It is. And whenever we're talking about that kind of descriptive language, or again, back to the science, whenever we're talking about things that slightly exceed our grasp for one reason or another, a metaphorical language becomes very important because it allows a flexibility in speech to speak about something without claiming that you're defining it or describing it in taught terms. And you need that space in many intellectual endeavours. Yes. You talk a little bit in the book about how metaphors and models in the sense of science have a parallel function, don't mm. they? Can you expand on that a bit? Well, I think a model obviously can be a physical model. You can have a model train, but a, a model in an explanatory scheme is often verbal. You know, sometimes I'm told that I'm not an experimental physicist. Physicists will just have a strictly mathematical model. Mm. But sometimes the model is simply, as I've already sketched, a model, say, of electricity as a fluid. So that's the kind of model that generates the metaphorical language from it. And the importance of the model is that it generates this language that can then be tested. What if it was really like a fluid? Would it then flow? Would it then have a current? Could it then be damned? I just wonder whether they function in the same way. So whether those sustained models in a particular discipline of science function in the same way as a sustained metaphor does within a religious tradition. You talked earlier on about, for example, Jesus, the Lamb of God, mm -hmm. and that brings believers into a certain kind of conceptual universe of trying to understand who Jesus was and is and so on and so forth. So that metaphor offers, as it were, a kind of conceptual universe I wonder whether models such as current and flow in, in electricity or genes and selfishness or, or whatever else, whether they function the same way as kind of framing our understanding of what we're talking about. 
Oh, certainly they can, yes. And one of the important things in, in using models is to be conscious of them, is to be, you know, not when we're using that language about electricity, which is now a dead metaphor, but when you're doing exploratory scientific analysis, you have to understand that you're using a model and, and when that model ceases to work. And this is often very hard, if, especially if a community is in the grip of a particular model. There was a wonderful book called The Structure of Scientific Revolution that you know, Thomas Kuhn. And it was precisely, you might say, that was about how the strength of an inveterate model can be so strong that people don't realize it is a mm. model. Now, that's a, a different dynamic, but sometimes it can be very enslaving to not be able to get beyond that model in scientific discussion and in religion as well. Yeah, I'm reminded of another line from Wittgenstein, a, a picture held us captive. It's mm, a similar kind mm, of point, it isn't is. it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is, really. Well, we've talked about how this isn't simply a linguistic issue for religion and talking about God, but it undoubtedly is one specifically important to when we're talking about religion and God. And that's why I want to move on to your new book, Naming God. I started my introduction by quoting the first line of an essay by Rowan Williams on Trinity and Revelation. And the following line, he goes on to say, since God is not the name of any particular thing available for inspection, it seems that we must, as believers, assume that we talk about God on the basis of revelation of what has been shown to us by God's will and action. Now, you begin naming God by talking about one seminal moment of revelation, the revelation of God's name to Moses on Mount Sinai, which is a story that is beautiful and perplexing, I think, in equal measure. What does that encounter tell us about how meaningfully we can talk about God? Hmm. Well, it's been uh, the source of immense amount of reflection, as you suggest from Jews and Christians and rabbis and church fathers and everyone else. Because here Moses is alone on Sinai. It's a call narrative. And he's called by name by God from this bush that's burning and not consumed. And in the course of this, Moses somehow bizarrely asks God for a name. You know, he says, what shall I tell the Israelites if they ask me? What's your name? And again, the medieval Jewish philosopher Rashi said, well, you know, what kind of a question is this? Because... Either the Israelites already knew the name and could verify it, or they didn't, and then how would they trust Moses? You know, it's, it's, it is very much an odd question. But mm. what's even more strange is that God gives an answer, really a series of answers. God says, I am with you. God says, I am the one who is with you and will be with you. God gives the holy name, the name, the Tetragrammaton, which Jews don't pronounce, and I don't like to, but I will for the purpose of the podcast, Yahweh. Hmm. But this is the holy name, which technically doesn't have a meaning, but in Hebrew seems to suggest the verb to be. So all the other names given as a sequence to Moses are versions of to be. So where in our English translations we read, I am who I am, the Hebrew is much more like, I am the one who is with you and who will be with you. So it's hmm. a name of promise and of presence. It's also a name that Paul Recur points out is a cipher. It doesn't say what God is in God's self, which is back to Rowan's Williams point. It says who God is for us. And then the other name that's given in this sequence is, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Very familiar name in the Hebrew Bible. And again, this doesn't say what God is in God's self, but what God has done for the people. This is this God who will be, God is self-announcing, who will be with 
Moses and the Israelites as they begin this traverse of, of the desert. So that's one thing the name says. But there's a n- number of other things. Very early on, it says Philo, who's a contemporary of St. Paul, understood that this meant, strictly speaking, God is unnameable because mm. God says, I am the one who is. And the early uh, rabbis and Targum writers and the early theologians associate this text back with Genesis, with the idea that God creates everything that is. So God is the one who is and the one who creates all, all that is. There's this potent linking of the language and the doctrine of creation and some notion of God's being and also God's being, as we've said, beyond our understanding. Yes. Even to say God's being is rather like saying God's a cause. God can't be a being in the sense that my pencil is a being and like God can't be a cause in the same way I cause my pencil to move. So this is coming together, but with something that's very, very important for Jewish and Christian and Muslim understanding, which is the very narrative by its form suggests that we can speak to God and God can speak to us. I mean, that, mm. that's what it is. It's mm. a call. It means that God can be called upon. God can be addressed. And another thing we need to remember here is that in Hebrew, the Hebrew phrase to call upon the name of the Lord is means to pray. To pray is in Hebrew, to call upon the name of the Lord. So you see, from my point of view, a wonderful fusion of, of things that are, are metaphysical, that are linguistic, and that are obviously deeply personal about this God. This God is at the same time wholly other, the one who is, yet able somehow in a way that Moses can't understand and and we can't understand, able to speak to Moses, to be with the people and so on. Yes. It is a quite extraordinary encounter and it's so layered and it's so dense and mm. it's so rich. I hadn't quite picked up, but I think it's very profound, that point about God's answers to those questions do not reveal God's self, but reveal God as in his relationship to his people. And also the fact that this whole experience is in the context of the call narrative. Mm-hmm. It's a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's very, very personal. Yeah. Yeah. The metaphysical reflection in there mm. is within this cocoon yes. of yeah. this, this slightly strange encounter between, between I know, Moses and, that's, and God. That's why, you know, you get a lot of philosophers, this whole big Ferrari about ontotheology and being and wanting to get rid of notions of being. It doesn't really apply to classical Jewish and Christian thought because being in these narratives is not like Aristotle's being or, or Plato's being. It's just another way that says God is the giver of gifts. God is, and we have our existence because God is mm. not just in the beginning a long time ago, but every second holding the world in all its temporal causality and being. Your talk of being recalls to mind a famous book of theology by John Zizulis, Being as Communion. Mm. I wonder whether I'm pushing it too far to say that you can read something of that into this story. In other words, God's being is only understood by us, can only be understood at all as an act of communion. Is that fair? Uh, No, I think it's fair. I think I'd put some provisos in that, at least in terms of historical theology, the understanding of God is that God created freely without compulsion. Mm. God doesn't create from any necessity or because God is lonely or anything like that. God Mm. creates out of the generosity of God's love. So that means God need not have created, right? God would still be God even 
impossible, you say, had God not created. And some way that theologians have talked about, there would still be the relationality of the Trinity. The early theologians wanted to say, no, that it was volitional. And this is partly to preserve the intimacy and love God has for the whole of created order. It's not like just something that happens and God doesn't notice, oh, I happen to create a universe. No, it's God is intimately present to all that is and um, attentive to all particulars. All creaturely life is being in relation and it's relation to God. But the point you raise is really, really important because this intimacy that comes from creation, and as I've said, it's not just called this a long time ago and then, you know, it's been playing pool in the back room for hundreds of millions of years. No, I mean, were God not creating now, the world wouldn't be for a microsecond. Mm. So that means the presence of God holds the whole in being without being the universe. So God is present to everything and we stand in relation to God, absolutely even though, in a sense, God doesn't need us to be God. We wholly are ourselves constituted in our freedom as creatures by God. But that means we're in relation to all other creatures, too. And I think that's a really important thing, especially for our day of environmental concern. Because sometimes, I think, in the high day of deism and 19th century natural theology, you had the feeling that only human beings were really worth God's attention and the rest of the world was just created a kind of tableau vivant for us to stroll around in and uh, maybe polish our souls. God and human beings as spiritual creatures and everything else like earthworms and squirrels as just stuff that was there. Whereas the doctrine of creation makes us understand that we are wholly of a piece with the rest of the created order. We all mm. are all creatures. Mm. And uh, I, I think that really is full of a lot of meaning for rethinking, not the theology of creation, but the theology of nature that we're now engaged in with such intensity. I want to conclude by asking you a painfully broad question of how we should now then talk about God. But the reason I want to ask that is because it strikes me that we are a much less Christian country. Mm. And yet we're not necessarily a less spiritually interested country, if I can put that very broadly. Now, this can be overdone, but either way, we haven't shifted from a wholly Christian country to a wholly materialist, rationalist, reductionist one. We do still talk about God. We do still talk about spirit. We do still talk about angels and aromas and auras and and that kind of thing. We still talk about the spiritual, but we've moved away from those kind of language games whereby we spoke about these things within a set of metaphors where we kind of knew what we were talking about. We had a similar kind of language. How then do we engage in a conversation about God today when we've lost any kind of common framework for that discussion? How do we talk about God in the 21st century? With care. But I think that's always been what the job of a theologian is. I'm almost more worried about how theologians talk about God sometimes, as though God were a great big guy with a big stick to hit people over the head. The whole of Dawkins' agenda is based on a kind of very anthropomorphic God and how ridiculous that is. And he must know, of course, that isn't the whole way it it can be said. But somehow along the line, a lot of people have been brought up to think that the Christian God is that kind of a big guy down the block. But to get to your question about how to speak to others, I think one way is through this environmental 
issue and not in the 19th century way, look at the lamb so beautiful, born in the spring, frisking around. Not yeah. that kind of sentimental view, but rather about our unity with other beings, with other creatures. Now, people use the language of creatures. Of course, it implies a creator. That's another dead metaphor. Yes. And people don't always realize that implication. But I've been thinking a lot recently about Dante, and it's 800 years since his death, so let's give him mm. a little hurrah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that in the Commedia, he starts lost in this dark wood in the middle of the way of our lives. And he's, he's sent a guide and to guide him through hell and purgatory, and that's Virgil. Now you think, Virgil, why does he choose an antique poet who's not a Christian? Because Virgil, for Dante, is a good man who understands what it is to seek the good. And in Dante's understanding, that is God, of course. And all of us are designed to seek the good, which is God. Even if we don't denominate it God, even if we don't name that God, we're all seeking the good. And that is what will make us fully ourselves, richly ourselves. But because we're human beings, we're misguided about our goods. And so, for instance, a sunflower, too, as a creature, seeks its good. So it, it turns to the sun. Uh, but if a sunflower had free will, might we imagine a sunflower saying, well, that's all right for most sunflowers to seek the sun, but I want to sit in the basement. Uh, yeah, yeah sun, you know, that wouldn't be a good choice for a sunflower, but they don't have free will. We do. Mm. And Aquinas believes that we, although we actually always naturally seek the good, we make mistakes about that good. And Dante's picked this up. But it's it's a profound thing that you find in certain kinds of Neoplatonism and other philosophy, that all things are oriented to the good. And a life ordered towards the good will be in harmony with your deepest longings, with other people, and with the world around you. Now, we've lost that now. I think to some extent, we feel ourselves to be cosmic orphans. We don't feel integrated with the world. We feel at a distance from the world and ourselves. And I think somehow recovering, uh, that's kind of a weird byproduct, I think, of what's sometimes called the Promethean humanism of the 19th century. I think Merleau-Ponty called it that. Just thinking we're so great, we're so special. We're not. We're not particularly great. And we are of a, a one with the whole of the created order. That doesn't necessarily bring people to a religious belief. But I think many people who aren't themselves religious are able to sympathize with that. The books are called Metaphor and Religious Language and Naming God. Janet, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Ah, it's a pleasure, Nick. Thank you very much. Next week, I'll be speaking to Anna Rowlands about her book Towards a Politics of Communion, Catholic Social Teaching in Dark Times. The reality is that human beings will seek their own good, which is to survive, to flourish, to have access to the basic goods of life, both for themselves and for their families. So it is an inevitability that people will seek to move and they will seek to secure those goods for themselves. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey... Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes 
It'll help other people find the podcast. <laughs>